Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Well, over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about the hidden costs that are often associated with life, those important things of life. And some of these costs might not be so obvious up front. I wonder how many of us have signed up for that really quick timeshare presentation while we're on vacation, only to discover that we were going to be giving away hours of our time. The truth is that if we knew of the costs up front, we might make better choices in our life. Now, last weekend, Pastor Jonathan did a brilliant job of setting up his teaching on the hidden costs of work. He shared with us his first experience on the job at work. And so I thought maybe I would just apply this formula to today's teaching. But when I looked at the topic that we were going to discuss for today, I thought I would rethink my approach a little bit. Let's watch this video together. Where do you think babies come from? <laughs> they sell them um, at hospitals sometimes. Oh, they sell them at hospitals? Mm-hmm. They're in, like, cages. We need the doctor to get the key, unlock them, and then get the kid that you want. How much do they cost? Ten dollars! <laughs> they come from up in heaven, and that's all I know. At the marriage, the two couples kiss, and then the... Man gives the woman something to help the baby hatch. They like little sperms and then um, they race. And then the woman becomes pregnant and really fat. Come on, let's do it. Okay, let's go to my house. Uh-oh, I have a baby in my tummy. Let's go to the hospital. Got out my baby, yay, let's go home. Now she's five, ooh, ooh, let's go to the park, yay. I'm just curious of what that was. I didn't know what that, this whole situation. That was kissing. Oh, okay. So I kissed mommy. Yeah. Okay. Well, kids, am I right? Growing up in the 90s, my sexual education consisted of three very memorable experiences in my young life. The first time I ever heard the word sex was on an ordinary summer day. Now, my cousin had called me the night before to let me know that she had something very important to tell me. And so that morning, she arrived at our house, and we ran upstairs to my bedroom, shut the door, and she excitedly proceeded to tell me that her older sister had found out how babies were made. And she quickly pulled out some teaching props from her her backpack, Barbies, and on that very day, I learned I was educated on the birds and the bees. Well, the second time I ever heard the word sex was a year or two later. We were coming in from recess at school, and all the teachers were lined up in the hallway. It was very odd they didn't do this, and immediately they announced that the girls were going to be going to the theater 
with the female teachers, and the boys would be headed to the gym with our one male teacher. Now, we were interested to see what was going to happen, but they said, calm down, you'll find out when you get there. Well, when we arrived at the theater, they sat us girls down right in front of one of these things. I don't know if you remember them. They used to wheel those all over the schools. There was like two or three, and they pressed play, and over the next 45 minutes, us girls were educated on periods, puberty, and intercourse. Now, following this very important presentation, I remember the teacher saying to us, under no circumstances were we ever to discuss what we had just learned outside of this room, and especially not with the boys. Well, finally, my third sexual education experience was on a special drive with my own mother. You see, she had just purchased this six-part cassette tape series from our local Christian bookstore that was from a very famous pastor. And over the course of that summer, she took me on drives and we listened to this pastor explain how our bodies were changing as teenagers and that eventually we'd be able to make babies, but we were not under any circumstances to engage in sexual behavior for a long, long time. Now, it's interesting because in my many years of pastoring, I've come to discover that this is a very common experience in Christian circles. It is either discussed and discouraged so that teenagers won't have sex, or it's not discussed so that teenagers might not know how to have sex. But the result of this type of approach often equates to the following equation. Sex equals shame. You see, each of my sexual education experiences taught me that sex was bad, Sex was embarrassing, and sex was private and should not be talked about. But here's the interesting thing. God's equation for sex looks a bit different. You see, God says that sex equals good. Sex equals good. And interestingly, the Bible has a lot to say about it. Sex is talked about a lot, especially at the beginning. God instructs creation to be fruitful and multiply. God instructs them. The Bible also has a whole section dedicated to sex. It wasn't included in my sexual education, but there's a whole book of the Bible that's dedicated to sex. And finally, it also has a lot to say about sexual immorality, and that would be going against God's design for sex. Now, before we get into today's teaching, I want to pause and make a very definitive statement. Sex is a gift. Sex is a gift. It's a gift that God gives to us, and it's a gift that we can give to each other. But the moment that sex is taken from somebody else, it is not a part of God's design. You see, when sex is not freely given, it is abuse, whether that's happening inside or outside of a relationship. And so today we recognize that some people may be joining us and they've experienced some sexual abuse or trauma. We wanna be very sensitive to those who have experienced this. That was never God's plan for sex. If someone has taken sex from you, I'm so sorry. And we want to come alongside of you. That was their sinful choice and not a part of what God had designed for sex. And if that's you today, I want you to know that we have the support and ability to come alongside of you. We have counseling and resources available. You are not alone. And we're going to provide some links that you can follow to access that support. And as I've been preparing for this teaching, I've been praying that as we explore God's original design for sex, it would be healing for those of us who may have been hurt in the past. And so today we're going to talk about 
the hidden costs of sex. How we're going to do that is we're going to look at a story in the Bible where the cost of sex was great. And then after that, we're going to look at the benefits of sex. And to help us discover the benefits, we're going to look at a sex book that's right inside the Bible. And finally, I'm going to give us four simple principles that we can use to better develop a healthy sex life as God intended it. So let's get us started. Our first story starts off with this statement. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to the war, King David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, I love King David. I love him because he is so relatable. He's so human. He's like me and you in many, many ways. There's David, the king of Israel, at home, while the rest of the army is off at the war. You see, David should have been at the war, but he instead he had decided to stay home. And that first statement, it starts off our story, and it really boils down to one thing, disobedience. You see, the Bible doesn't use throwaway sentences. Everything that is included in the Bible, God wants to teach us with. And the lesson here is very clear. With each step of disobedience that David took, the next step of disobedience becomes easier and more certain. So the next verse goes on to say, late one afternoon, after his midday rest, that's nice, he's sleeping while everyone's off at war, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Haiti. Then David sent messengers to get Bathsheba, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Wow, there is lots going on in this passage. Now, before we continue with the story, there's a few things I want to note for us. First of all, David is in a position of extreme power. He is the king. So it's very unlikely that Bathsheba could deny her king when he called for her. Next, the Bible tells us that Uriah, her husband, was an honest, upstanding individual. He was off at the war fighting with David's army, fighting for David, while King David decided to stay home. And we also know that David, the Bible says, is a man after God's own heart. So David knows God's commands and rules for his life. David knew that sleeping with a married woman was forbidden. And David also knew that sexual activity while a war was going on was also forbidden. But David started this story with a disobedient heart, and so he continues to act in disobedience. And after they have slept together, the Bible tells us that Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And so David crafts this plan that he's going to call for Uriah, her husband, to be brought home from the battlefield so that Uriah might sleep with his wife and be tricked into thinking that the baby that she is carrying is actually his. But when Uriah comes home, he sleeps outside of their house so that he's not even tempted to have sex with his wife. And he doesn't even want to break the law that he's not to engage in sexual activity while a war is going on. Well, David learns of this and he is frustrated. And so he invites Uriah to the palace and he gets him drunk with the hope that Uriah will now go home and sleep with his wife. But Uriah continues to refuse. He sleeps outside. And so David eventually sends Uriah back to the battlefield and David arranges for Uriah to be killed on the front lines. And once that has taken place, David takes Bathsheba home to be his own wife. Now there's so much that we could dig into 
in this story. But here's the truth I want us all to see in this. David's disobedience knows no bounds in this story. He desires and summons a married woman to come to his bed. He engages in sexual activity during a time that it was forbidden. He tries to get someone else to sin so that his sin can be covered up. And finally, when that doesn't work, David commits murder to hide his sin. You see, in this story, David was using sex for his own personal gratification. And because of this, David is going to cause extreme damage and destruction to many, many lives. Now let's look at another story that is completely different in every way. There's a beautiful book in the Bible in the Old Testament called the Song of Solomon. It's a recorded conversation of love and passion and sexual experiences of two lovers who are married through the course of their engagement and their wedding and their honeymoon and their marriage. Now I'll warn you, some of it is a bit explicit, but we're gonna look at a few of the tamer verses today to give us a general idea, a general picture of what a healthy sex life should look like between two committed partners. Well, the book starts off by telling of an engagement between these two individuals who are head over heels in love with each other. And this is what the young woman says about her boyfriend at the time. She says, kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. How pleasing is your fragrance. Your name is like the spreading fragrance of scented oils. No wonder all the young women love you. Well, next on the wedding day, the groom says to then his bride, You are beautiful, my darling. You're beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like the doves behind your veil. You are my private garden, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring and a hidden fountain. And then goes on in their honeymoon, the young bride full of passion and love for her new husband says this of their time together. My lover tried to unlatch the door and my heart thrilled within me. My lover is dark and dazzling, better than 10,000 others. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is desirable to me in every way. Whoa! And finally, we get to the marriage days where they've spent some time together and time apart. And this is what the wife says to her husband. Come, my love, let us go out to the fields and spend the night among the wildflowers. Let us get up early and go to the vineyards to see if the grapevines have budded. Because if the blossoms have opened and if the pomegranates have bloomed, there I will give you all of my love. Well, if you didn't catch it in those readings, the many garden and fruit references are directly speaking to sexual intimacy that this couple is enjoying together. Now, there's a lot that is going on in this text, but here's what I want to highlight for us today. The main voice in this whole conversation throughout the whole book of Solomon is actually the woman's voice. And that would have been unheard of at that time. You see, this is the only book in the whole Bible where a woman speaks more than a man. This woman is initiating the sexual relationship with her lover. And in those times for a woman to have such a loud and bold voice about her sexual health and their sexual health, well, that's extraordinary. Because to give a bit of context, this is a male-dominated society. But there she is boldly declaring that God's plan for sex is for two consenting, committed individuals to give themselves to each other for their whole lives. There's such a difference between the attitude of King David and this young woman. 
You see, King David, he wanted what was not meant for him. He is only thinking of himself. He's not thinking of anybody else. And he's using sex for personal gratification. But then we have this young woman, and she wants everything that God has in store for her. And everything she says, everything she does, it's out of commitment, out of love for her lover, for her husband. She uses sex to connect permanently to one individual for the entirety of her life. So today, I'm going to give us four simple principles for a healthy sex life that we can learn from these two stories. And the first is this. Sex is for covenant people. Sex is for covenant people. What do we mean by covenant? Well, there's a big difference between a covenant and a contract. When we think of covenant, we think sometimes of marriage vows, like in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, for better, for worse, for richer or poorer. Those covenant promises are saying that I will love you and I will serve you regardless of my feelings and regardless of when you won't measure up. Not if you won't measure up, when you won't measure up. A contract, on the other hand, says I will do this and I will serve you as long as A, B, and C are met. You see, a contract is a cold piece of paper that outlines what is owed to somebody else. And contracts, they're not that special. You and I, we hold contracts with lots of different individuals and different companies at the same time. We hold contracts with our banks who deal with our debt or our, our money. We hold contracts with our employers that they will agree to pay us for our services. We hold contracts with our phone companies that we will pay them if they give us phone service. And if those parties don't hold up their end of the contract, well, we're likely just going to break the contract because there's no promise of forever with a contract. But covenants are sacred. And this is why God designed sex to happen within covenants because a promise to protect already exists there. You see, the only safe sex is within commitment. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, a fantastic book, says this, don't unite with someone physically unless you are willing to unite with the person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Don't become physically naked and vulnerable to the other person with becoming vulnerable in every other way. And the reason for this leads us to principle number two. Sex is for getting naked. Sex is for getting naked. You know what? Sex is the great revealer. You can't sleep with someone for very long and hide yourself from them for very long. Every time we have sex, we're not just taking off our clothes. When we get naked with someone, we're taking down walls and allowing them to see our most authentic self. You see, we invite them to see all of us, even the places that we usually keep hidden from the world, including those hurt and broken places. The truth is that we are all fallen people. We all have imperfections. We all have massive areas where we just don't measure up. There's an ugliness that's inside all of us. And that's just a reality of our humanity. We are not perfect. But sex is permanent nakedness with and in front of somebody else. And in a covenant, this is a beautiful experience to be completely real and authentic with another individual. Because the commitment is already there, the other person will take what you are giving them and treat it as a treasure 
Treat it as sacred. Treat it as worth something, worth protecting. You can be known and safe with someone in a covenant relationship. But if there is no covenant there, then there's no responsibility on their part to treat your most vulnerable, authentic self with care. You know what? They've made no commitment to you. They're like saying, well, I'm getting to know you, and if I like what I see, if, if I don't see anything ugly or scary, I might consider making this permanent. This is why in the Song of Solomon, the woman warns, do not awaken or stir up love until the time is right. A translation of this text would sound like, don't tempt yourself to have sex outside of a covenant. Don't get naked with somebody. Don't stir up the passion until you've decided who you want to be permanently naked in front of. Because the moment that passion is stirred up, something happens. And Andy Stanley says it so well, because sex is sticky. Andy Stanley says this, sex was designed as an adhesive. It's sticky, meant to help hold two people together permanently. If you apply and then remove and then reapply and then re-remove an adhesive, it begins to lose its adhesiveness. Every time you have sex with a different partner, you apply and then remove, and eventually your sexual experience will begin to lose that stickiness. And the way you will know is because sex will begin to lose its significance. When my children were younger, I got such joy out of hand-me-down toddler shoes. It saved the earth. It saved my bank account. It was a win-win situation. But there was always one problem with toddler hand-me-down shoes, and it was those Velcro straps. You know the piece that keeps their little foot secured inside the shoe? After months of wear, it would always have gunk piled up in it, and it would just stop being so sticky. That Velcro strap had been attached and reattached and it had dragged on the floor and collected who knows what all along. And eventually that Velcro strap, it just wouldn't stick on the shoe anymore. It kind of hung off. It was a hand-me-down shoe. You know what? Sex is kind of like my kids' hand-me-down shoes. The more places that it has gone, the more people it has encountered, the more times it has been used, and the more usage that it has experienced, the less sticky it will become. And here's the problem. Eventually you're going to meet someone who you love and who you want to live your life with, to spend your whole life with. You're going to want to permanently stick together with them. But the glue that God designed to connect the two of you together, sex, maybe it's not going to be that sticky any longer. And then you're going to have a problem. You see, the Velcro just won't work as well as it was used to if it's been used time after time. But there's really good news if that is you today. Because when you clean up Velcro, it can become sticky again. I'll be honest with you, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of hard work and determination. I've spent hours picking the grossest stuff out of my kids' Velcro straps on their shoes. But if you're willing, I found that you can dig pretty much anything out of those Velcro straps. And if you're willing... Velcro can stick well again, and so can sex. It just needs some attention. Which brings us to principle number four. Let's talk about sex. About your thinking, haven't we already talked about it enough, Pastor Jessica? Well, let's talk about it a little bit more. You know what? We need to start talking more about sex 
especially in our Christian circles. We need to start talking about sex with our counselors and our therapists so that we can get to points of healing. We need to get comfortable talking about sex within trusted friendships because we know that accountability is healthy for us. We need to get comfortable talking about sex in church. Because the truth is that God designed sex. So God's people should be the leading voice in why God made it and how we are supposed to use it. You see, our kids, they need to hear from a Christian perspective before they hear from anybody else. Now, I've talked to hundreds of parents. I used to be a kids pastor and a youth pastor. I've talked to hundreds of parents on when is the right time to approach this conversation. And you know what? The research is really clear. Kids are learning about sex before their parents are willing to talk to them about it. And this is a problem. So how do we go about having a sex talk? Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to have it early. We need to have it early because the first voice that a kid hears on any subject in life eventually becomes their measuring stick. The first voice they hear on any subject in life becomes their measuring stick. This becomes the tool that they're going to take with them for the rest of their life and measure every other opinion against. And so we need to make sure that this tool has the right information for them. So that as they're talking with their friends and talking at school, they have the right information before they go into those conversations. They need to know that it's okay to come to us with questions. Because if they don't feel comfortable talking with us about their questions, they will go and find someone else to talk about it with. So the next question parents always ask me when we're talking about having a sex talk, what age is appropriate? What should I be talking to my kids about at any specific age? Well, by age one and two, your child should be able to properly identify their body parts and call them in the proper ways. They should be able to say, I have a penis, I have a vagina. They should know that there's no secrets about their bodies. By age three or four, your child should understand that their body is completely their own and people need permission to touch it. They also need to know that no one is allowed to touch it without their consent and permission. By age five and six, your child should understand that making babies is something that only adults do, not children. And they should be able to talk about their bodies as comfortable as if they would talk about their ABCs. By age seven to eight, your child should understand what sex is and how it is done. By age nine to 10, your child should understand about puberty, masturbation, and pornography. And finally, by the age of 12 plus, no topics should be off limits with your kids. And you know what? I know this is really uncomfortable. I know that none of us want to go to our seven-year-old and explain what sex is. But parents, the truth is that if you won't do this, someone else will get there before you can. So we need to have these conversations early, much earlier than we want to have them. The second thing after we've had it early is we want to have them often because we want to be the loudest voice in their life. There is going to come a time, parents, where kids don't want to talk to you. So we need to use the years that they want to talk to us to be a loud, constant voice in their life. How do we do this? Well, by watching shows, by reading books, by looking at real-life situations that are happening in media and school and culture. But after we've looked at them with them, we need to discuss it after. We need to talk about it. This is not a one-and-done conversation. We need to have this conversation often. And after we've had it early and we've had it often, we need to have it again. 
We want to be that constant voice, constantly discussing, constantly open, constantly available for our kids to come to us. As parents, we have to set aside any shame or uncomfortableness that we have and encourage our kids to come and talk to us. Because if they're coming to talk to you and they're asking you a question, chances are high that someone in their social circle, in their circle of influence, is already talking about it. And so the goal is to be a safe place for your kids to be able to come to and talk with. Parents, we have a really unique opportunity to help set our children up for a healthy sex life for the rest of their lives. We can help them understand these really important principles at such a young age so that they become the measuring stick that they use to measure anything anyone ever says to them. We can help them understand that sex is for covenant people. That sex is about getting permanently naked with someone else. That sex is sticky. It's meant to, as a glue to, to hold you together to the person that you were going to marry. And that sex is something that we can and we should be talking about. You see, God's plan for sex is really good. He designed it to happen within a covenant so that it would help permanently connect us to one person for the rest of our lives. And so as we end our talk today, I want to talk to those of us who may need to clean up the Velcro in our lives. Maybe we haven't always treated sex the way God has designed it to work. For those of us that are single, if you're joining us and you're single and you haven't treated sex the way that God has intended it, maybe you need to take a break from relationships. Maybe you need to take some time by yourself to change the way you approach relationships. We want to learn to become more like the young woman who is fully committed and wanting everything that God had for her life within a committed covenant relationship rather than King David who used sex for his own personal gratification, who thought of no one else but himself. And so we do that by spending time with ourselves. We also do that by finding a, a counselor or a trusted mentor, by sharing our struggles with someone else, asking them to pray with us, to check in on us, to encourage us and to keep us accountable. For those of us who are engaged, looking to get married or, or married, what can we do if we haven't been treating sex the way that we should, the way that God had designed it for? Well, the first important thing is to have some open, honest conversations. You know what? If you haven't been honest with your partner up until this point, now is the time to do so. If you have struggled with porn or sex in the past, they need to know. And you need to do the work. You need to clean up some of that Velcro. A great way to do that is to see a counselor, a therapist, find an accountability partner who can keep you accountable so that you can grow in this area. If you're married and, and your practice has always been giving instead of taking, if your sexual history has been focused on others and self-gratification, you need to challenge yourself to give more than you take within your covenant relationship. For couples joining us today, one great way, a takeaway today would be to read through the book of Song of Solomon together and then invite some honest, open conversations. It might be awkward at first, but it's a good book and God included it in the Bible and he wants to use it to teach us. You know what? You're going to find some great ideas in there. And finally, what about those of us who are single and happily single? What next steps could we possibly take from this teaching? Well, simple. You're just going to keep living your life and honoring God with it. You see, marriage and sex are not requirements for a full life. 
In fact, the Apostle Paul in his letters argues that that singleness is a way to honor God and it allows you to do things that you would never be able to do if you were in a relationship, in a covenant relationship. So honor God with your life. If you're living a life that's single, whether by choice or by circumstance, just honor God. Continue to honor him. See, God's design for sex is so simple and it applies to each one of us today. When we approach sex in the way that God designed it, it is very, very good. So whatever season you or I might find ourselves in, whether we are single, married, engaged, maybe we're widowed, God's design for sex is the same for each of us. He says when the time is right, when it is between two committed individuals who are living within a covenant, And when each of those partners is willingly giving themselves to the other person, that is the best time to stir up passion and enjoy it. Let's pray, friends. God, we thank you for the gift of sex, this beautiful gift that you gave to us and that we can give to each other. We recognize today that we may not always have approached this gift in a way that honors you. For those of us who who may say, you know what, I've messed up in this area of my life. God, would you help us make a change? Help us to reach out for help and accountability. Help us to grow in our approach for sex so that we can begin to honor you and obey your instructions in this very important area. God, for those of us who have experienced sexual trauma in the past, I pray that you would give us the courage to reach out and ask for help. Thank you for the promise of the hope on the other side of healing, God. Thank you that you promised that we can have wonderful, fulfilling sex lives, God, in the future with new partners through healing and restoration, God. God, you love us so much. And God, we pray for our couples who are engaged and married, God. Would you help each of these couples couples build a formation of trust with our partners that would honor you and your design for sex in every way? God, where healing and wholeness is needed, we ask that you would bring that, God. Would you bring restoration in our lives? And finally, God, I pray for our families and our parents. Would you help us to create homes where our kids feel safe to discuss everything, God? Especially those moments where we might feel awkward or ashamed, God, or uncomfortable. Would you give us the confidence and the wisdom to navigate these conversations? God, I thank you that you're always leading us. And so we ask that you would continue to lead us on this very important journey. Thank you, Father. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time.